want to greet each one of you in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here. It's good to see, I believe it's Shane's folks here. Welcome to our worship service and to the rest of our visitors as well. Welcome here this morning. This morning I'd like to share a message that is, first of all, spoke to me and ought to best of my ability uh, articulate it to you here this morning. So what message I believe we need uh, in this time we're in. And the message title is Sow Seed and Faint Not. Sow Seed and Faint Not. It's taken out of Galatians 6. And if you'd open your Bibles to Galatians 6, read verse 1 through 10. It's a familiar passage. Let's stand to read the Word. Galatians 6 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. You may be seated. So first of all, I'd like to look at this thing of planting. You know, if we're going to reap, we have to plant. And it seems like Paul takes it for granted here that we will plant. We'll either plant to corruption or we'll plant to, to the incorruptible, to immortality. So when I think of planting, especially planting good seed, I think of investment. You know, whether you're planting a crop on the farm or whether you're planting a house or whether you're planting for your career for your job, you know, sowing seeds, so as it were, and study and so forth. In some way or other, you're, you're planting from a very young age or your parents are helping you plant. Maybe the piano lessons, um, teaching you music. I recently planted. I became a, a farmer <clears throat> since farming was in my roots. And uh, we do plant garden. You know what that's about. Most of you, um, we planted, we planted some fields. The land we live on is ideally suited for sage grass, ideally suited for pines and locust trees. <clears throat> and if you're anything of a farmer, you know when you hear those words that it's land that needs a lot of work. But I'm told, or I've been told, that this land has potential to be more productive. And I hope I was told right. You know, our desire is for our land to be productive. We have some sheep. We put some sheep on. And we want to support more than... We want to support livestock. We want to see good grass growing. 
We want our land to be more than just a sanctuary for turkeys, deer, coyotes, and birds. Or at least I do, contrary to my children's wishes sometimes. So, you know, going on the good advice of an agri- or of a nutritionist, where we've been ch- invested a, a large, seemingly large chunk of change in seed, and we'll be doing some fert- lime and fertilizers to help our land become productive. And we're hoping that we'll reap, you know, in a few years from our investment, we'll reap from better livestock and um, better uh, produce. We hope we'll reap a dividend for investment. Well, planting calls for hope or it calls for faith. No matter what you're doing, if you're farming, if you're parenting or studying, there's a call for faith. Uh, You can do your job without faith. And I've seen these people and have times been this person doing my job with a sense of futility, you know, moving around like that country song that I hear on job sites often, I'm in a hurry to get things done. I rush and rush to life's no fun. Talks about just, you know, the routine and it's kind of a catchy tune. And uh, it's one country song that I think uh, a person does well to listen to. It kind of shows the futility of just life in, in without God. I've also seen my life, and I think probably you all, you all have too, especially as you mature in your responsibilities, kind of take a circular nature. You tend to meet the same people, maybe not every day, but in the course of your business, you tend to meet, um, or in the course of your parenting, the course of whatever you're doing, you tend to meet the same people again and again. Your life kind of circles uh, with some sort of a routine. Uh, one example would be that, is that of coming to church. You know, on Lord willing, we're here every Sunday, and it's kind of it builds on itself. And there's nothing wrong with this. We start, we plan, uh, we execute, we finish, we repeat, we move through it again and again, and we get hopefully we get better and better. And that I think is sort of how life is. Uh, It can be good. And if, you know, if that's fragmented, if we don't invest, if we don't sow seed, and if we don't reap um, any business, anyone, including ourselves, if we can't reap, our business will fragment, our farm will fragment, our endeavor will fragment. So there needs to be sowing and there needs to be reaping for us to move ahead. However, life must be more important than the sum of our labors. If it's not, it's futile. Um, and I'll move, I'll, I'll look at that some more here a bit. Just bear with me. I see this circular nature as being our tent making. The tent making part of our life working with our hands, not being a burden to others, having the wherewithal to live and to give. Tent making creates for us a place of material value. It gives us a place of material value to the lives of others. 
<clears throat> and I had to think, you know, Paul was a tent maker. I take that from Paul's life. He was a tent maker. He worked with his own hands, so he had to, to uh, support himself and to give. And that well-fabricated tent that Paul made, I'm sure he made, I'm sure was very much appreciated. I had to think of a tent that we were in in a thunderstorm in West Virginia one time that wasn't made well. And that after a good hard downpour, all collapsed right into the middle of us and uh, along with all the water and everything else about five in the morning. And that wasn't a very well, much appreciated tent. Anyways, when we do things that that other people appreciate, when we're in the society, giving to society, uh, things that people, other people appreciate, it gives us a, a door into other people's lives. And gives us a way of, of enriching and uh, of influencing other people towards the kingdom. And that's where the circle no longer becomes futile. It loses its futility. It becomes progressive in nature. It becomes um, um, eternally. Um, it becomes eternally valuable when that circle begins to influence others for Christ. Well, life tends to be circle, but God's statutes and His principles, they're straight. They're a straight line. They're, I think of as vertical. And I see these circles moving around this straight line. And as long as we have this straight line in the center and our circles moving around it, we're being, we're being productive. But if we move out of that and our circles start moving out away from that, that center line, uh, we become unproductive. We become our our work becomes futile. When that when our circles get outside of the line, beware. Um, you just may not be being of, of value in, in an eternal sense. And, and there are there are things that come into play that would that would draw our circles away from God's center line. As long as we're in this world, there'll be competing interests. We know that of life, of the life cycle and against the eternal values of the contemporary against the spiritual relevancy of the cultural or the cultural or the culture and the accepted to the God ordained and the scripture sanctioned. You know, much like the bill and the gold, I see the bill as being the dollar bill, the hundred dollar bill, whatever it is, it's, it's, I see it as, as com- comparable to the culture and maybe the Christian culture that we live in. It uh, depends on how the Christian culture lines up with the Word of God. But the gold is a standard. It stays there. It has intrinsic value. It doesn't change. It actually, in the let, you know, hard economic time comes and, come and, and the gold grows in price. It becomes more valuable. The, the bill is only as valuable as what people will trust it to be. And I see that the contemporary culture the same way. It's sustained by thought and by trust and not by intrinsic value. Real, eternal value. The, cult, the, the contemporary culture that we live in, it doesn't build good homes. It doesn't provide contentment. 
And in fact, it thrives in creating dissatisfaction and lust. It doesn't bring peace. It doesn't save souls or prepare folks for eternity. It doesn't have eternal intrinsic value. And then there's the danger of strongholds. The devil, you know, he would set up strongholds in our lives, block us, try to keep our, our circle from, from having a, a center, the center pin of, of the Word of God's will uh, in it. He would, he would try to set it off, off of balance. And, you know, finally send that circle into the wilderness of futility. Well, how can we, how can we make sure that as our life circles around, and hopefully it keeps going up, up, up as it makes these circles towards holiness, towards um, more light, how can we, how can we, Keep doing this without letting go, without fainting, without backing off. And is that important, or can we kind of go into an autopilot and you know this our life just be doing good things and and be be of eternal value to others on and on? I don't think so. I think it takes an ongoing an ongoing will, determination on our part. If we're going to really be of, uh, of good use in God's, in God's work. If the seed that we sow is going to really come to fruition, I think we have to do more than just to go out there, plant it, and cover it up, and then you know, let God bring the rain and do the rest. There's, there's work for us to do to bring that seed on into fruition. And I'm not advocating a works religion here, but I'm advocating an ongoing willingness to, like we heard in our Sunday school lesson, to stay in the boat with Christ. Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, why would we have to put on the whole armor of God? Why would we be called to do that if there was nothing more to do than to you know, get the seed planted and we could walk? Now, I see a... I, I see a a call to wrestle that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wrestling. Spiritual wrestling. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand... Stand, basically, it's saying, having done all, stand, stay in place. Use a disciplined approach. Stay there. And I'd like to think of a few. I'd like to look at a few practical things. I believe we can do to to stand, to to stay in place. And that is going back here again to the armor. Put on the armor. The Romans were a disciplined people. They had a disciplined army. Uh, when they lost their discipline is when they lost their will. They lost their uh, identity, their country. But at, all the time they grew, they had a very disciplined 
army. And that's the reason they were able to stand. We also have to be disciplined as Christians if we're to stand. There's an uh, article I read uh, some time back. It was uh, out of Jim Collins, uh, Jim Collins' article about leadership. And it talks about the 20-mile march. The John Brown's 20-mile march. And I'll just read a, a few paragraphs here. Imagine you're standing with your feet in the Pacific Ocean in San Diego, California, looking inland. You're about to embark on a 3,000-mile walk from San Diego to the tip of Maine. On the first day, you march 20 miles making out of town. On the second day, you march 20 miles. And again, on the third day, you march 20 miles heading into the heat of the desert. It's hot, more than 100 degrees. And you want to rest in the cool of your tent, but you don't. You get up and you march 20 miles. You keep up the pace, 20 miles a day. Then the weather cools and you're in a comfortable position with the wind at your back. And you could go much further, but you hold back, modulating your effort. You stick with your 20 miles. Then you reach the Colorado high mountains and you get hit by snow, wind, and temperatures below zero. And all you want to do is stay in your tent. But you get up, you get dressed, you march your 20 miles. You keep up the effort, 20 miles, 20 miles, 20 miles. Then you cross into the plains and it's glorious springtime. And you, and you can go up to 40 or 50 miles in a day, but you don't. You sustain your pace, marching 20 miles. And eventually you get to Maine. And then it puts out, imagine another person. He starts out on the same day in San Diego. He gets all excited by the journey and he logs 40 miles the first day. Exhausted from his first gigantic day, he wakes up to 100 degree temperatures. He decides to hang out until the weather cools, thinking I'll make it up when the conditions improve. He maintains this pattern, big days with good conditions, whining and waiting in his tent on bad days as he moves across the western United States. Just before the Colorado high mountains, he gets a spate of great weather and he goes all out logging 40 to 50 mile days to make up lost ground. But then he hits a huge winter storm when he's utterly exhausted. It nearly kills him and he hunkers down in his tent waiting for spring. When spring finally comes, he emerges weakened and stumbles off towards Maine. By the time he reaches Kansas City, you with your relentless 20 mile march have already reached the tip of Maine. You win by a huge margin. And the idea is here is just a disciplined approach, you know, taking the rest, uh, getting out there day after day into life, making that progress, moving ahead uh, at a pace that makes sense, neither uh, killing nor pampering, but moving ahead, knowing the direct direction you're going 20 miles day after day. And we've, you know, it goes back to the, to the rabbit and the, uh, or the, to the turtle and the hare. That's the same story is, is there. Uh, you know, the, hare, the turtle won because he just kept on moving. The hare made these bounds and then lay down and slept and so forth. And, and the turtle won um, at the end of the day in that, in that old fable. But the, the principle is there. We move ahead day after day with, with discipline. We pace ourselves, you know, in, the, in, in all of life, whether it's farming, construction, business, service you're involved with, uh, teaching, being a student, homemaking, um, 
using a disciplined approach at what you're doing is, is a way of, of, of being able to accomplish, being prepared to reap, preparing yourself to reap. There are times that, that we have to do more than the 20-mile approach. There are times when the crops have to be brought in. The concrete has to be poured. The day has to be long. Maybe the, you know, the, the tests have to be done. Um, it all has to take place in a day, and there has to be heroic effort made. But as long as we pace ourselves up to that point and get everything accomplished ahead of time that we can, it can make that big day doable. It can make the reaping doable. All of us are called to contribute in one way or other in kingdom responsibilities. And equally true, all of us will face moments of discouragement as we make our earthly circles. We'll face moments when it doesn't feel worthwhile to keep Christ as center of our sphere. We'll face moments when we'll be tempted to believe that perhaps clear Bible teaching can be mushed up a bit to suit our contemporary culture. We'll face the criticism of people close to us that we're too rigid or too harsh in our beliefs. And how should we respond to that? First of all, we should check our motives. Are our motives right? Are they biblical? Has the stand we've taken, has it stood the test of time? Has it stood the test of time for our fathers or those before us? Does it, and then look ahead, will it stand the test of time or is it something that we um, simply are doing? And, you know, they say equally as we look at a change, we have to look at that. Will it stand the test of time? Can we see it standing the test of time or is it a selfish motive? But again, how should we respond if we're, if if we're, if people challenge us for the stand we take on things, um, I think the ultimate criteria is: is your way of life, is my way of life, simply a way of life, or is it the life that you believe the Father would have you live, have you walk? You know, if we're walking in the steps of the Savior, we don't need to be threatened by the person who practices or believes otherwise. Are our motives pure? You know, it's possible that our stand is correct, that the way we live is correct, but that our motives are less than correct. And it's good for us to do frequent prayer checks on our motives. I think sometimes that's the only real good way to check our motives is to do prayer checks on them. Ask God, you know, are my motives right here? Am I approaching this the right way. Uh, Psalm 127, impressed with, there again with, with David's um, insight. He says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. You know, that can be a good house that you're building. It can be great. It can be useful. Or it could be. But then remember, except the Lord's building it, it's, it's, it's uh, in vain.
And no doubt life is going to have its battles. But you know, let us battle prayerfully, lest we battle in vain. And let us make sure that we're in our 20-mile march or in, in moving ahead and making our progress, that we're making our progress according to the Word and not just simply going across a desert. So again, is this, is this circular nature of your life, is it graduating you toward or upward toward God's straight line of holiness? Or is it gravitating you out and away from your what should be your spiritual sphere? And I believe that thinking of Christian goals, thinking of, of our work and so forth, I think that we should wear our Christianity on our sleeve. You know, our short sleeve shirt, our work shirt, our whatever shirt we're wearing. We should wear our Christianity on our sleeve. And I also believe that we should be having goals for our, and this is changing a bit, but it runs together in my mind. We should be having goals for our church, for our congregation. And these goals should mesh together to, to, uh, you know, to cultivate that seed that we're spreading as we make our circles on this, on this earth. And it should also be spreading here in our congregation and growing. The whole idea of brotherhood is to bear each other's burdens and to provoke one another to good works and to take our part in the body of Christ for the good of the brotherhood. So what happens when our spiritual goal for the brotherhood isn't met? You know, have you ever had a spiritual goal for your brotherhood that just doesn't seem to be met? Perhaps your brothers, your sisters don't see the urgency. Or they don't seem to care. You know, is that all it takes to kind of put us in a faint and to put us, you know, on the defense? It can, but it shouldn't. Remember the 20 mile march. Remember the idea of gaining a little bit each day, gaining a little bit each year, growing a bit more. Our church can become a better and more vibrant and more spiritual place. We can be better parents. We can be better Sunday school teachers, better board members, better mothers, better husbands, better wives and better youth and children. We can grow in Christ-likeness and better exemplify the fruits of the Spirit. I believe there's room for that. We haven't reached a platinum by any means. We can better walk the path of the early church and celebrate our Savior in every way. I believe that. But it's going to take conviction on our part. It'll take a willingness on our part to stay focused and not to drift. And there's a lot of drift happening today, I believe. To live purposefully according to the straight line of God's Word and not allow ourselves to kind of swing out of sphere. Swing out of orbit. It'll require us to be disciplined Lead a disciplined march, neither killing ourselves or pampering ourselves. It'll require us to be bold, but not brash. Understanding, but not compromising. Fearless, but not arrogant. Your good things happen when we sacrificially yield ourselves in obedience to the Word. Good things happen when we do that. In doing so, I believe spiritual goals can be met. Maybe not in a day, 
But we need to look further than a day. We need to look on down the road. And this morning, I'm going to share a few spiritual goals that I have for our church here. And I know that you have spiritual goals for our church, and I trust you do. I've heard those. Um, I wish our youth would be here this morning. The Lord impressed, I believe, impressed me to, to share this, but then I thought, well, maybe He's impressing me to share this this morning when we don't have youth so that we as older Christians can exemplify. And I believe our, I, I appreciate our church and in sharing these goals, I'm not saying that we don't exemplify um, these. I'm just saying I think we could do better. And these are some goals that I have, not in any critical sort of way, but goals I have for myself personally and for our church. To have better prayer services. And I know Brother Sam shared on that uh, a few a few Wednesday evenings ago. Unfortunately, we weren't able to be here. But from what I've heard, it was a very good message on that. Confessing our faults one to another and praying for one another that we may be healed. Like James 5.16 says, taking advantage of the prayer uh, that line to God in, a, in, the, in the context of a congregation. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What about the effectual righteous or effectual fervent prayer of, of our whole congregation being together? How much would that avail? I would like to see that. I would like to see um, all of us availing ourselves of that. And here I appreciate what one of our sisters has been doing and putting out a prayer chain. Let's continue prayer for, uh, for Sister Judy. I appreciate that. That there is a, I believe, a, a way of, of having a spiritual goal and getting it out there and, and uh, helping others to, to rise up to meet the challenge. Number two, spiritual goal for our church, and that is a will to greet each other as Christian brothers, and this is otherwise known as the kiss of charity or the Christian salutation. Now, I believe this is something that slipped in our time. And uh, I believe it's something we could do better in. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen eleven says, "Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of a good mind. Be of one. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with an holy kiss." And this is stated a number, a couple more times in the Corinthians, and then in in uh, Romans it talks about it as well. The Christian salute. I believe we're losing something if we lose this. And I appreciate the way that this has been uh, exampled here by brothers in the church, brothers and sisters. But I encourage the older ones of you to initiate this greeting with younger ones. You know, we need to lead by example. Over the next year, on every Sunday morning, I would encourage you as the older brothers and sisters to make an effort to tell your younger brothers and sisters, the youth, and so forth, by the simple gesture that you appreciate them as a fellow child of Christ in the congregation here. As far as I know, this, this reference to the salutation wasn't only to the people of the cloth, but it was to be a common Christian salutation. 
you know, it shouldn't be one of awkwardness, but one of love, of showing that we're committed to each other, committed to helping each other, and that we're identifying with each other, we're equal. You know, we're quite willing, us men are quite willing to let our sisters uh, make a strong statement with a veiled head, and rightly so. Uh, but what about us? Are we willing to lead out in this simple ordinance of, of greeting and of identity, of sharing identity? Let's, let's, uh, let's, I encourage us to, to uh, step up the 20 mile march in this area of our brotherhood. And then another, another goal, spiritual goal that I have is full participation in communion. You know, to me, well, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says this, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. And this to me seems the most core Christian command and common identifier of Christian practice and identity that we can find in Scripture, this, this command of sharing communion. It's very clearly taught by word and by example by Christ, and it's reinforced by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. It's a practice unique to Christianity. And it celebrates the suffering and the ultimate victory of Christ, which makes it possible for us to become part of his blood-bought family. It celebrates that celebration of Christ's victory. And for us to, to lightly, and I appreciate everyone that bears that has part in this, and I, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir in a way this morning, but I want I want to let you know that this is a word of encouragement. Um, let's reach out. Let's let's reach out to our fellow brothers and sisters, and maybe to those that are, you know, cast down. Let's bear each other's burdens in this respect. Let's see what we can do to have full participation in our next communion. I believe it's very important. It is, like I said, I believe the most core Christian command of Scripture. And number four, spiritual goal that I would have for myself and our church is an increasing awareness of the persecuted church. Hebrews 13.3 says this, Remember them that are in the bonds that is bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. So we're in this body together, and there are Christians that are suffering. They're dying for their faith today. These are people who are part of our family. Well, we live in good old Lynchburg. We're enjoying the benefits of a decent economy and the benefits of freedom of religion and the benefits of even being favored by those around us. These are people who are being oppressed. They're being imprisoned. They're facing hate trial, and temptation. And we can learn from them. We have a lot to learn from them. The way they're standing against, against evil. The way they're staying faithful. The way they're keeping on witnessing even in spite of receiving the, the, uh, the awful um, oppression and rejection that they do. But they can benefit, I believe, from our prayer, our prayers, and our support. I think that we do well to find 
organizations that support Christians, oppressed, persecuted Christians in other places, and give. We don't need to give, you know, big. But if we can give regularly, you know, do that 20-mile march thing. Give regularly. Give a bit. Give what we can. It doesn't have to be, you know, empty out the checkbook unless the Lord calls you to do that. He might do so. But give regularly. That's what, that's what uh, the need is usually for. For more of a systematic giving. And I see that as a place where I and my family can grow in. It helps us to really understand how, how blessed we are and also understand that um, how our life's, lives may change as well. <clears throat> so these are, the above are both personal and congregational spiritual goals for me. And I know that these are goals for some of you as well as I've heard these expressed. I've, I've had these expressed to me. And I know that some of you have other spiritual goals for a congregation, not that I didn't express, and I appreciate that. They're good and they're righteous goals. What I'm encouraging you here to do this morning is to think about that, that march, that 20-mile march. You know, not going so hard and making such a big um, march that you end up needing a long time to recuperate. Neither, uh, you know, backing up into the tent and saying, "Oh, the wind's blowing outside," and okay, we're going to we're going to uh, we're going to stay in the tent today. But just simply getting out there and making that march, making our circle day after day. You know, I see our culture. I see evil forces as it speaks of in Ephesians 6.12, knifing into us, gutting us of our Christian identity or attempting to gut us of our Christian identity and attempting to divide our loyalties. I'm not just speaking of our congregation here, but I'm speaking of Christianity in its broader sense. You know, if they can divide our loyalties, if they can divide and conquer, why should they bother persecuting us to death? You know, much easier to to simply knife in and, and divide and conquer that way. John 13.34 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if ye have loved one to another. And I'm not sure what there is about, you know, surrounding culture that makes us back up like we tend to do, or like uh, at least I tend to do. You know, I'm quick, or I think I'm quick, and I think we tend to be quick to second-guess our stand on issues. And we can be very capable apologists. But why? Why do we apologize for our positions? Or why do we tend to do that? Is it because maybe our circle is getting a bit out of orbit? You know, if we're truly sold on our product, we'll be willing to defend it. If we aren't, we'll waffle. Unless, of course, we're like VW, who sold a product for being something it wasn't. And, you know, in Christianity, we would call that heresy. Um, so let's not be that either. We don't need to be apologize or be concerned of being a sh- or be ashamed if we simply follow Christ one step at a time. Now, today we stand as stewards of our congregation here. We're indebted for the hard work that those who before us did, that those before us invested into our congregation. 
We're stewards of that. And we also have a responsibility to improve and further, to build and conquer. Christ asks us to be faithful. And he expects this of us. And he he expects this of us on his terms, not on our terms. You know, I'm sure we want to hand over the reins of this congregation, of our congregation, to our children someday in as good or better shape than what we found it. Why not? I mean, that's what we would want, isn't it? And that's what our parents want of us. We'll have to give, or we'll want, as parents to give our children the best base possible and place them in a position that they can further grow and improve the congregation here. But we can only do that as long as we're disciplined, as we move, as long as we step one, uh, take one step at a time, as long as we keep our circle centered on Christ, uh, God's vertical line. We don't have to be helpless in the face of culture. We don't have to make a one-time Herculean effort either. What we need to do is be faithful. We need to not faint. We need to sow, take care of, and be ready to reap. God help us, each one, as we march, as we move ahead. Help us, God help us to be wise and to be faithful. God bless you.